Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit with Holland and Barrett. In this episode, I am really delighted to be joined by Jaspreet Kaur. Jaspreet is an award-winning spoken word poet. She's an author, she's a teacher, and she's a regular commentator on TV and radio. Her debut book, Brown Girl Like Me, came out earlier this year, and it focuses on issues deemed taboo in South Asian communities like menstrual health and gender struggles. She's an ambassador for Bindi International, a charity tackling period poverty and the stigma surrounding menstruation. Welcome, Jaspreet. Hi, Gemma. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It really is. And there's so much we can talk about today. I'm excited to get sort of stuck in. But what I always love to start with is just a bit more of an understanding of the person that I'm talking to for our listeners and why you've taken the path that you have. So wherever you want to start, just let us know a bit more about your motivations and why these things are so important to you. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's definitely a great place to start. And I guess I've had quite the unconventional journey in in terms of talking about who I am today, my bio as a, as a spoken word poet, as a writer and an author, but also an educator and a teacher. This has been quite a journey to get to where I am now. And, and especially thinking about some of the causes and, and issues that I'm trying to tackle and trying to fight with the work that I do. It honestly all started back when I was a teenager, back when I was about 13 years old. Um, teenage Jasper definitely was not the woman that I am today. I was a very anxious, shy teenager. I was suffering from anxiety attacks, suffering from even later on depression in my teenage years. And at that point in my life, I was growing up in quite a traditional Punjabi family that didn't talk about mental health. And I couldn't access any mental health support at that time. So I turned to writing. I turned to poetry. I turned to journaling as a way to support my mental health and to support my well-being. And that's something I continued for a number of years and continued into my 20s. And it was around this time of my early 20s when I was at university, I decided to study history as an undergrad and then went on to study gender studies as a master's. That's probably when the feminist in me really started to grow. And I guess I've been a feminist for a very long time. Even as a young child, I would say I've always had very strong feminist values. I grew up in a family with very strong women and was always that kid who would always ask, but why? Or that seems unfair. I would always be that kid kind of asking those questions. And I think that's kind of what triggered my my, my passion for feminism in my 20s and wanting to then fight for causes like gender inequality and issues relating to menstruation, issues relating to sun preference in the South Asian community, and really trying to find a way to tackle these issues. And I'd been writing poetry for a number of years, like I mentioned, since about the age of 13. And I recognized that poetry, spoken word, creative expression could be a really powerful tool to try and tackle some of these difficult topics. Um, So that's what I started to do about five, six years ago. I started using performance poetry as a way to tackle some of these more difficult conversations. And at the same time, I was also teaching. I'm also a history and sociology teacher. So I was teaching in the classroom. A lot of those same values that I was trying to 
teach in my poetry as well. And I guess that's brought me to where I am today. But it's been quite an interesting journey, lots of different roles, lots of different titles. But I guess ultimately, it is to educate and it is to inspire and it is to try and have sometimes those more difficult conversations to try and make some change. Yeah, that's fascinating. I loved hearing about the way that you evolved and developed as a person throughout your teenage years and 20s and really honed in on the things that interested you and have been able to use those interests as a way of informing and inspiring other people, which I think is ultimately one of the main goals in life, I think, for, for most of us is to understand, well, what, what, what leaves us feeling really inspired and how can we share that with people? So thinking about your childhood and you mentioned you had loads of really strong women around you. Mm. And yet there's also that juxtaposition of preference for sons in South Asian communities and uh, taboo topics around female health. How did that play out in your life personally? Hmm. I guess the way that I saw some of those, I guess, behaviours play out as a child wasn't, wasn't in a really obvious way, but it would be kind of small comments or overhearing conversations as a child. And you would begin to recognise that there was a, a stark difference between how boys were being treated in, in our communities compared to how girls were being treated. And, and to be honest, this starts from the very outset. This starts from the birth of a baby you overhear these conversations of if a girl is born, if it is a baby girl, you would hear conversations of relatives saying things like, don't worry, you'll have a boy next time. And this idea of when they would have a baby boy, that would be celebrated. Families would give out sweets. They would give out laddus to other family members and friends. Whereas when a girl would be born, they wouldn't receive that same kind of celebration. So it would be these really subliminal messages that you would see from the very outset from when a baby's born, all the way up to when you start growing up and wanting to do different activities, wanting to play outside in the garden and girls being told you're not meant to be playing outside too much. That's what boys do. And these, these lessons, these kind of gender norms and these socialized behaviors, we then start to get taught from a very young age. But thankfully, in my immediate family, I'm one of four siblings. I've got two older brothers and one older sister. And thankfully, my dad, who's a really key figure in my life, a really big inspiration to me, would always treat myself and my brothers the same. He was very adamant on all of us getting a really strong education. He was really adamant on us all being really big readers, hence why I'm such a book nerd today, take us to the library once a week. And we'd really encourage like the love for literature and the love for learning. And that's something that's definitely been installed to me even now as an adult. And I think some of those lessons from my dad taught me that okay, this is how it should feel. And this is how we should be treated. And some of these other behaviors that I'm seeing around me just aren't right. And just, it's just not fair. And when it came to health, especially conversations around women's health, I guess those, those conversations just did not happen. Definitely not in my house. There were just conversations mm. that would not happen amongst the women in my household, despite the fact that I had my mum an older sister and my grandma living in my house as well. It's quite an intergenerational household, but we women would just never have these conversations. Mm. Interesting. And so how did you, you've obviously done a lot of activism around periods. Mm. Is it okay to ask about your own experience with oh, yeah. periods? That how did, if you had no discussions around women's health, like, mm. 
how did that play out for you? Oh yeah, I'm very open about my period journey. And I think that openness about it is what <laughs> is trying to tackle this taboo and the stigma around menstruation and periods. And it's something I've, I've spoken about very openly in, in my book, in Brown Girl Like Me, of my journey with periods started around the age of 13, 14, um, which to some might be considered a little bit late considering that some periods start a little bit earlier than that. But mine began about the age of 13. And I remember it was a really kind of non-celebratory experience in the sense that I remember when I started my period, I was upstairs in the bathroom, saw some blood in my knickers, had the cramps going on, called for my mum who was downstairs in the kitchen and the door, bathroom door was closed and we're having this hushed transfers through the door of this conversation of, mum, I think I've started my period. And all she did was slip a pad under the door, told me how to put the pad on my knickers. Um, and that was it. Further from that, there was no more conversations. There was no more education around it. It was just that, that very quick transfer of this is how you use menstrual products. And that was it. There was no other conversation around it. And sadly, at that same point, thinking about my journey in school, and I'm sure this was the same for a lot of young women, that in school, it was that same kind of hushed conversation. I remember it was this assembly that all the girls had to do where we got taken into the school canteen whilst all the boys got to go out and play in the playground. And all us girls got hushed into the into the canteen and the school nurse did a very quick presentation on periods. This was like in year six and she showed us a video, had a very quick conversation about what it is, when it might start, what to do. And we all got given a little packet to take away with us with a few menstrual products in it and maybe a leaflet. And then that was it. That was the only education I really received. And unfortunately during my teenage years, I was having really irregular periods. So they would come for months at a time, then stop. And then around the age of about 15, 16, I had a continuous period, ongoing spotting for about five months. And I didn't tell anybody. Because of this stigma around menstruation, because of what I thought at that time was a conversation that was seen as dirty and, and taboo, I didn't tell anybody that I was continuously spotting, which I should have. I should have flagged that up much sooner to a family member, to a doctor, but I was so scared. I was so ashamed to mention it. And I think there was this underlying factor as well in my head, even at the age of 15, that I was worried that if I tell people there's something wrong with my periods, maybe they will assume that I can't have babies later on in life and will relate that to my fertility. And it, it's crazy to think that at the age of 15, I was already worrying about these things. And eventually, because of the ongoing bleeding, a lot of tiredness, feeling really fatigued, and eventually my mum my noticed that this was going on and we went to the GP and they did a few scans, checked out what was going on. And, and at the age of 16, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovaries, which is very common in the UK. Almost one in 10 women have the condition here in the UK. And at that age of 16, I just, I didn't really understand what it was. The GP kind of gave me a very quick brief on what it was, told me to go home and do a Google on it just to understand it a bit better. And I was put on the pill at the age of 15. And at that point, 
I just thought, okay, maybe this is the medication I need to be on. So I just started taking the pill as a way to regulate my periods. And, and that was it. No conversations, no follow-ups, no other further education after that point. So unfortunately, that was my journey with menstruation during my teenage years. And it was only in my 20s, probably in my mid-20s, that I really started to take the time to do that self-education and really start to teach myself about menstruation and to understand my own body. But sadly, the journey at the start wasn't wasn't the most positive one. No. I, yeah, there's a lot there that, that you went through. And it makes me reflect on, I suppose, the things that, that I remember from that time. And I don't recall having any education at school at all about periods. So I, I think it's actually quite refreshing. Maybe you're probably younger than me, but it's quite refreshing to think that they do actually at least have a presentation of some sanitary products, which I don't remember having myself, but mm. it also makes me feel really grateful because my mum was so sweet about my periods. And I'm sure that every woman listening to this podcast has got their own story about what they went through at that time. But I remember her packing sanitary products into my bag at primary school oh. and said, you know, just in case, yeah. you never know when it's going to come for the first time. Yeah. And then, you know, when it, when it did eventually happen, she took it as a celebration of my womanhood and she gave me a gift and, you know, we talked it all through oh, and she was just the most lovely. It is, it's lovely. And I feel so lucky that I had that because if I hadn't, I think it would have been quite scary and confusing and certainly, you know, bleeding for many weeks or months at a time would have been a huge concern. It would have been a real worry. So I'm really glad that you are now in a position where you can talk about this and in a way, it does seem that there is some education in schools, but from what you've said, it sounds like you feel there should be a lot more. Mm, yeah, there's there's definitely significant changes happening. And I guess I should highlight that since 2020, so since two years ago, it has now been introduced introduced on the national curriculum that it's compulsory to teach about periods and menstruation to both boys and girls at primary school and secondary school level. So 2020 was a really significant year for that change to happen. Unfortunately, that was the same year, as we all know, as a worldwide pandemic. So whether that really got initiated in schools in the way that people might have hoped might have been quite difficult because of virtual learning and virtual teaching happening for most schools during that year. But the legislation has changed, which is fantastic. That is now compulsory to teach it in PSHE lessons to all genders. And I think that's quite a significant change from how we grew up with either no education around it or maybe just that very quick conversation just to the girls. And I think when I spoke to other women, when I was doing research for the book, a lot of women and girls said if they did receive any education, yes, it was just the girls in the class that received some of that, some of that information. But this definitely needs to be a conversation that we're, we're having with both boys and girls, that everybody is aware of, of the menstruation process. It is just like every other bodily function in the body, it's something that we should learn about and something that we should know. Um, so yeah, 2020 was definitely a significant year for some of that change to happen in the education system. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. I've been talking to my boys about menstruation, whether they like it or not. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, but it is important for boys to know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't have I don't have daughters, but you know, mm. I think I've got to teach my sons too. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It might not be that they're going through menstruation, but how is that an excuse to to not be empathetic to those that are? I think that's my approach to it. I think you can't ignore something just because you're not the one going through it or it's not your body that has to go through that bodily function. I think we, we all need to be learning about it. So yeah, it's definitely a conversation to have with our boys as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think reflecting on how it was dealt with by my mum and how it was dealt with in your family, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, would you have any advice for people in households similar to the one that you grew up in as to how to approach these things now? Mm, yeah, I guess it's, it, I think number one is a, a little bit of this kind of consciousness raising of this awareness of where does this stigma even come from? Where does this kind of taboo around menstruation actually come from? Where does it start? Um, and that was quite interesting having some of these conversations with, with women over the years and, and through the charity work that I've done of, of trying to understand why is it so stigmatized? So I think that's one of the first places to start as, as families, as, as parents, as educators, as, as anybody really, really recognizing why is it so taboo? Um, and I guess there's, there's two main reasons for it. There's a number of different reasons, but I think to me, there was two really big ones that jumped out. And number one was this idea that periods are, are still seen as something that's really, really dirty and unclean and unhygienic. And I think that adds to this kind of stigmatization of not wanting to talk about it, not talking about it openly, even just some of the language and some of the terms that we use when we're talking about periods and menstruation seeing it as unhygienic and unsanitary is, is one of the problems around it. One of the main days of, of celebrating menstrual health in, in, in the UK and across the world is, is menstrual hygiene day that happens every year in May. And I think even that word hygiene is something that we at, at Binti International, where I'm an ambassador, is something we're trying to tackle. So rather than calling it hygiene day, is calling it menstrual health day. So it's really focused about awareness and education and our health. And even, even menstrual products, they're most commonly called sanitary products. And that's what I was calling them for a number of years until I became an ambassador at Binti. And the founder said, okay, we don't actually use the word sanitary anymore because it gives this idea of it being unsanitary and unclean. So we prefer to use the word menstrual products instead. And I think this idea about language and, and how we talk about periods is, is one of the first places we can tackle some of this change. So, so not talking about it like it's dirty, talking about it just like we would any other health concern or any other bodily function, seeing it in that same way. So I think that's one of the key areas to work on. And I guess the second area of why it's so taboo is that even for myself, like I mentioned, when I was having problems with my periods back when I was a teenager, one of my first concerns, even as a 15 year old was, will this impact my fertility later on in life? Will this impact me having kids later on? And I think that aspect of periods is something we need to tackle about relating it to fertility all the time and relating it to sex all the time is this idea of periods are something that have been sexualized. Maybe not in the same way as how we've seen sexualization in other forms, especially around women's bodies. But 
even periods have been sexualized because it is related to sex. It is related to fertility. It is related to having babies. Whereas if we kind of remove some of those things away from it, desexualize periods, then maybe that will make people more comfortable when it comes to talking about it, especially in South Asian households where sex is definitely one of the biggest taboos. So I think that's one of the other key areas for why it's become so taboo and stigmatized. So trying to desexualize it, seeing it as any other bodily function, any other bodily process, and not always relating it to sex and fertility, I think is one of the other key ways we can make some of this change happen. Hmm. It's really interesting reflections, actually. And I've not really thought about sanitary towels or, you know, in that way. I, I, it's interesting now that you have pointed it out because you're right, it completely gives you the connotation that there's something dirty about it. And I'm also reflecting on the things I learned years ago about various religious faiths because I remember reading about, I think it's a, it's a subset of Judaism where women have to sort of essentially isolate themselves during their period and there's, there's, um, a cleansing ritual that they have to go through uh, on completion of their period in order that they be deemed clean enough to then have sex with, which just happens to be probably the time at which they're ovulating, of course, mm. in that particular subset of you know the Jewish faith, as an example. And you know, I've seen that play out in various ways, you know, in in some Christian traditions as well. Muslim traditions. So it's, it's interesting. It wouldn't necessarily just be like a, a Sikh or a Hindu or, yeah, or a cultural sort of country thing. It seems to be quite widespread. Uh, and there was this concept of the red tent. Mm. Have you heard of that? The, the women were sent to the red tent when they were menstruating. Yeah, yeah. So this is quite common in some parts of South Asia. There was, there's a lot of research on specifically in Nepal of these tents, these huts. That, that women, young girls would be sent to whilst they're menstruating. And it would be these quite horrible, dark, scary tents that they'll be sent to whilst they're menstruating, not perhaps receiving the support and help they might need during that time. Um, so that was just one example happening in Nepal. But you're absolutely right, Gemma. Like This is cr- across a number of different cultures, a number of different contexts, a number of different faiths of of these really interesting conversations around menstruation. And you mentioned just some there in Judaism, but in, in Islam, um, menstruating women aren't meant to enter the mosque and aren't meant to touch the Quran. They're also during Ramadan, whilst they're fasting, if they are on their period, are encouraged not to fast, which is obviously to the benefit of the woman. Um, if she is menstruating, she'll obviously need to be nourished and having food so she doesn't have to fast. Um, in Hinduism, in, in some places, menstruating women aren't allowed to enter temples. So it's quite interesting when you look at different faiths, different countries, different contexts, there's a lot of similarities here. So there's not a way of seeing so often these are seen as perhaps far away problems and sometimes related to just kind of disadvantaged countries. But that's definitely not the case. This is happening everywhere, no matter, no matter kind of what community or society you belong to. I think despite what what religious connotations there are around them or what faith-based connotations there are around them. I had some really interesting conversations with women who said that their faith actually 
gave them more confidence in talking about their periods. And it actually allowed them to talk about menstruation and periods in their own families, amongst the men in their families, because they used faith as a way to give them the strength and the courage to talk about it. So that was quite an interesting experience of rather than it seeing being always seen as something that's oppressed them, instead it actually gave them the strength to talk about their, their menstruation, especially with, with the men in their lives. Yeah, that's very interesting. That juxtaposition between the historical and the personal relationship that you have with your faith and, and how they can be quite different, actually, in terms of the effect they have on you. I think that I find it quite fascinating because essentially it's, it's half the population that goes through this and yet it's not really talked about. Exactly. <laughs> so it's lovely to actually have this sort of conversation around it that people can feel more open and also to open up the idea that, as I mentioned before, you know, I talk to my sons about it. They know how long my period lasts. They they know what products that I use. And having those conversations in the home mm. can be very instructional for young men um, as they move into starting relationships in the future. So they can understand a little bit more about how, how these things impact the people that they love. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny now compared to where my journey started as a teenager now in, in, in my late 20s everybody knows everything about periods in my family because of the work that I do. All the men in my family are very open about talking about menstruation now. My hubby knows what pads I need and what, what products I use. So if he's out in the shops, he'll pick them up for me. So it's a very open conversation now compared to how it was back when I was younger. But having them involved in these conversations is, is incredibly important. And yeah, hopefully later on in life, if they are in a relationship with a woman, but not necessarily because of that being the only reason, just being more, more aware of it, being aware that 50% of the population has to go through this once a month for a predominant amount of their lives just should, should be something that everybody is aware of. But I, yeah. I do wonder sometimes if it was the other way around, if it was men that had to menstruate, would this be different? Would this conversation be more open? Would it be more well-researched? Would it be more more talked about? It's, it's just something I always do question whether it was the other way around. Would, would this be a different situation? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And my instinct is that it would be more talked about. <laughs> but, but having said that, you know, I do think that men generally talk about their health less. So, yes, I think it would probably be more talked about in society, more researched, but perhaps perhaps not necessarily more talked about on a personal level. Because I don't know about you, but the patients that I see in clinic, they've often waited a long time before they come to me with health concerns if they're male, mm. which I think is another interesting aspect of it. But yes, um, so, so where would you like to see things go from now in terms of all the work you're doing with Bindi International and period poverty uh, where do you think you'd like to see things uh, moving forward? I guess one of the key areas, just even just where we've touched on Gemma about about research, is is a really key area. I think for us to to understand menstruation better, I think there needs to be a lot more funding, a lot more research going into women's health, um, and and definitely for myself as a South Asian woman, when I was trying to do research on, on the impact of, of menstruation, specifically on women of color, I could hardly find anything. And I think that's just another key area that I want to see a lot of growth in. 
kind of wider research and funding going into women's health, but also looking at the impact on for, for women of colour. Is there different experiences, yeah. different different levels of pain? Is there different levels of the types of products that they use? Um, I think that's definitely an area that I would love to see a lot of growth in, in, in the years to come and, and trying to advocate for that funding and research to happen. Yeah. On the other side of things of, of definitely creating more awareness and education, I think we're going in the right direction. Like I mentioned earlier, the education system is trying to change um, the way that it talks about menstruation and women's health on the curriculum. So I think we're definitely moving in the right direction there. We're now starting to see access to free menstrual products in a number of different places now. So schools and colleges across the UK now offer free menstrual products to students that might need it, which wasn't the case years before, back when I was in school, if you needed to get a pad and you went down to reception, you'd often have to pay for it. I remember it used to be a pound for one pad, which is insane. But the fact that students can now access free menstrual products in their places of education is, is incredibly important. And we're seeing a number of different changes happening globally. I know Scotland's definitely leading the way in, in, in the access for menstrual products in, in bathrooms and public toilets. It shouldn't have to be something that women struggle to get their hands on. And, and that is the case. Plan International did some research around this and found that one in 10 girls between the ages of 14 to 21 can't afford menstrual products. And that's here in the UK. And girls are resorting to using other things like tissue, using socks, using anything they can find. So the fact that that's happening here in the UK, that girls aren't having access to free menstrual products is really devastating. So that needs to keep moving in the right direction, that, that girls and women can access free products. And um, so I think those are some of the key areas that I want to see some of this change happening. And over the years, I've seen really interesting campaigns around menstruation, even in the digital space on social media. We're starting to see menstruation being a, a much more open topic than yeah. it was, say, five, six years ago, back in 2015, which is often known as the year of the period because there's quite a few significant menstruation campaigns going on back in 2015. Some of the key examples that, that really jumped out to me was one was a young girl called Kiran Gandhi who free bled during the London Marathon. And it was quite, quite a big, big, big news story. And then all the papers, a lot of images um, on front pages and headlines of this young woman, Kiran Gandhi, who on the day of the London Marathon had started her period and she made the choice that either I'm going to have to put some pads on or wear some menstrual products and feel uncomfortable running this entire marathon or I just decide to free bleed. And she decided to make that choice just to let herself bleed. And I think just seeing blood for the first time for a lot of people was really jarring and, and something they hadn't seen before. But I think that really changed a lot of people's perceptions on, okay, it's just blood. <laughs> we see blood in a number of different forms. People watch horror movies and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and won't get freaked out. But, but for some reason, when it comes to menstrual blood, people seem to get, get really freaked out about it. And so that was a, a really significant moment in 2015. And there was also the international well-known poet Rupi Kaur, who put some Instagram pictures up online. It was an art project she was working on of some photography images of her on her bed with a little bit of menstrual blood 
on her, on her trousers, on her jogging bottoms. And Instagram actually removed the image and they took it down. And this was back in 2015. The, the way that even, even these big platforms and social media platforms are, are kind of policing women's bodies in this way. So that was a really significant moment. And she caused a really big uproar around it and got a lot of support to get the picture put back up. Um, and eventually Instagram apologized and did put the image back up. But these are some of the kind of really significant things happening in the digital space to make it more normalized to see periods. And I think as well as the funding, as well as the education, that's what I want to see. I want to see it normalized that we're okay talking about periods. We're okay perhaps seeing menstrual blood. These are things that we're not afraid of anymore. Yeah, I think that's fantastic and so important. And the idea of giving out free sanitary wear or free menstrual products um, is important because, again, it just normalises it in people's minds. If you see them in you know, mixed toilets, even because there's a lot of unisex toilets now, if you just you know, if you saw free menstrual products in those toilets, mm. again, it's just a way of saying, yeah, this is a normal bodily function mm. and it's nothing to worry about. And also, I totally agree with you. We need a lot more research when it comes to menstrual specifically I would say in my own research I've been really disappointed in the lack of research available into endometriosis and fibroids and PCOS mm. uh, these three conditions that are hormone mediated that affect our periods that affect our fertility and we just do not have enough information uh, which I think is, is is a real travesty so yeah I think that's definitely a really great way of moving forwards with this issue and uh, thank you for mentioning that yeah have you got any final thoughts on menstruation before I uh, delve into some other aspects of your work um I guess just the final final message on menstruation to all girls and women out there is, is just take the time to get to know your body. Um, yeah. and, and that's something I, like I mentioned before, I only started doing in my mid twenties and I really wished I, I had started that journey sooner of trying to understand my body better. Um, and what I started doing was started tracking my periods. Um, I started using an app, but it's definitely something you can do with good old fashioned pen and paper if you want to, but there's a lot of apps out there, a lot of programs out there that can help you track what's going on with your body. And I think when I started to do that, I learned so much about, about my menstrual, menstrual cycle, about why I feel certain ways at times of the month, why I was getting headaches at certain points, why I might've been maybe a bit too much information, but why I might've been more constipated at certain times of the month. And I needed more fiber in my diet and, and learning all these things because I was understanding my periods and my menstrual process made me feel so empowered and it made me feel like I just felt so liberated by understanding, wow, this is what my body is doing. And I feel I, I've, I've, I've made a friend with my own body um, and I wish I, I made that friend sooner. So I think that's maybe one last message to all girls and women out there to start understanding your body better, listening to your body um, and make that friend, make that friend with your body. Oh, that's wonderful. Make friends with your body. And no, it's not too much information regarding the constipation. And I should also say, you know, when you're around your period, often you you get looser stools, much looser motions because of the prostaglandin release from the womb. It also affects the bowels nearby and you're more likely to need to evacuate your bowels. Mm -hmm. So so there we go. Nothing <laughs> to worry about there. <laughs> um, right. Now, I really am curious to learn a little bit more before we round off uh, regarding your poetry and 
your own journey towards discovering that as a means of self-expression because many young people these days and well all through time but I do feel it's become a lot more prevalent these days that there's a lot more anxiety Mm. and low mood issues certainly issues with self-harming in our young people these days have you got any sort of words of wisdom coming from your own experience around having these um, struggles yourself as to uh, what you found helpful and why? Mm. Whether it was poetry or whether it's any other form of creative expression, for some people it might be music, it might be dance, it might be other forms of writing. I think that these creative forms of expression can be really, really powerful tools to support your mental well-being, like as it, as it did for me. I was using it from the age of 13, even till now, using writing as a way to let out everything that I might be bottling in. And often that's where a lot of this anxiety for myself was coming from. That I was holding in and bottling in a lot of this pain, a lot of this confusion, a lot of my worries I was holding in. Whereas when I started to write it out, I would literally feel like I'm releasing it from my body and I'm unbottling some of those feelings. And, and I think that can be incredibly powerful when, when, when you can't access perhaps other forms of support, that's maybe a place to start. It's something that you can do straight away. And, and this is what something I've been doing with a lot of young people. I go into schools, I deliver workshops, I deliver talks on, on the power of creative expression um, and teaching young people to use these tools as a way to release some of those emotions and emotions and, and some of those things they're bottling in, especially in this post 2020 world, having go, gone through a pandemic, we're seeing a lot of young people suffering from anxiety, suffering from depression. So providing them with the tools of support that we can, and, and obviously definitely still recommending other forms of mental health support, such as talking therapies, um, cognitive behavior therapy is a number of different things I've used over the years that definitely supported my mental health. But that creative expression of, of, of releasing it from your body can be can be really, really empowering. And it's something I, I still do, still do till this day. Ah, I, I, I'm looking forward to listening to some of your poems online. Where can we find more of your um, your poetry? Oh, yes, definitely. So um, on my Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, you can find all that good stuff at Behind the Nedra. Um, that has been my poetry name, my poetry stage name since I began about six years ago. So it's called Behind the Netra, N-E-T-R-A. Um, and you can hear some of my poems, watch some of my performances. Um, I've been really fortunate enough to perform on a number of amazing stages over the last couple of years, um, including uh, a TED Talk for TEDx London. I got to perform for the Royal Family back in 2018 at Westminster Abbey. Um, I've performed on, on a number of different kind of charity as well as corporate stages as well. So, uh, yeah, you can de- definitely check out some of those performances and poems online. How does it feel to be able to say I've performed for the Royal Family? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel I still feel that. It was such a surreal moment. Um, <laughs> it was in front of the royal family, a number of political leaders, a number of world leaders, and, and it was an audience of around kind of 2,000 people sitting in Westminster Abbey, and it was broadcast live on the BBC. So it was one of the scariest moments um, I've ever had to go through. But yeah, a wonderful opportunity to, to share some of my work on, on kind of a, a global stage. 
Absolutely. Still, still have to pinch myself sometimes. Like, did that? Was that a dream, or did that actually happen? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. I'm definitely going to see if I can check that out. Right now, so this is the wellness edit, and I would love to hear more about your own ideas around wellness. And you know, what does it mean to you? What does wellness mean to you personally? Mm, wellness, wellness to me is something that's both physical and mental. Um, wellness to me is feeling strong, healthy, content, both mentally and physically. And uh, for a long time, I thought wellness was something that was only physical. And that if I felt physically healthy and physically fit, then, then I'm well. But that's definitely changed for me over the years of really putting my mental well-being at the forefront and, and seeing it as something that's equally as important as my physical well-being um, so wellness to me is feeling strong, confident, content, both both physically and mentally. Mm, that's wonderful. And would you say that you do anything routinely to help you feel more well? Mm, yeah, I, I would. I've, I've always said my, my mornings are something that are really sacred to me um, and something I, I cherish a lot. I wake up quite early um, every morning go for a nice long dog walk with our big doggy. Uh, we've got a big Spanish Mastiff, so he, he needs a good hour walk every day. So that's a, a lovely way to start start the day, just starting out in nature. No phones, no digital devices, nothing else distracting me and my hubby when we go on our nice morning dog walk. I then get back in the morning and take some time to meditate. I've, I've always been quite a spiritual person, but meditation's something that I've only really implemented into my life in the last couple of years. Um, and taking that time to meditate every morning definitely makes me feel more present, more mindful, more grateful. Um, and starting my day in that way is, is really important. Also, then doing a bit of yoga, doing a bit of exercise, having a good stretch. Um, and then getting on with my day. And, and, and like I said, that's something I try and, and cherish every morning. It's a really, really precious time every morning that I, I do that for myself before I set off for the day. That sounds like the most amazing morning. <laughs> do, you, do you go every morning with your husband? Do you spend an hour walking together every day? Yeah, so that's what, something we do together. And, and for our relationship, it's something that's really important too, because we're both very busy people. We wear lots of different hats, so we've got lots of different roles that we, we have in our professional life. So we, we always make sure we've got that time together every morning, which is, which is really special as well. That is, and that's something I think we can all learn from. <laughs> I don't think I spend that much quality time with my husband in a week, let alone every day. <laughs> I love that. That's wonderful. Oh, and um, I guess to finish things off, is there been a change that you've made recently or something that you've sort of recently come to know mm. that has led to some improvements for you in, in where you see your own wellness? Oh, uh, something I've done recently. It's going to sound really obvious and Gemma, it's going to sound really bad that I've not been doing this before, but drinking more water. I know that's a really obvious one, but... No, it's not. We all, we all, I don't think any of us drink enough water. <laughs> just drinking more water. And it's been hot recently, so we're trying to do it anyway, but I'm always just trying to carry around um, my own water bottle and filling it up during the day. Thankfully, this has become a bit more normalised that people are carrying around their own water bottles and there's places to refill it all across London now, which is great. But that's something I'm definitely trying to do, trying to drink more water and 
as someone who's got quite a busy lifestyle, sometimes there has been like a whole day where I haven't drank water and that's ridiculous. So, so that's definitely something I've only implemented recently of, of trying to drink more water. And that has made a significant impact in how I feel and feeling more energized, more hydrated, less headaches. So yeah, yeah. Drinking more water, which is an obvious one, but yeah, definitely a really important one. Absolutely. Simple, but, uh, but no, uh, no less important. Mm. Thank you, Jasper. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the wellness edit. Uh, I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation and I would share, I would, well, I would encourage them to share their own menstrual stories, you know, or if they didn't know anything about periods, maybe there's a, there's a man listening who never had education at school, never talked about it with his relatives and is actually wanting to reach out and say thank you so much for teaching a little bit about menstrual health for him as well. So thank you, um, Jaspreet, and I look forward to sharing this with our listeners. Thanks, Gemma. So what did you think of that episode? Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with Jaspreet about these issues and she actually opened my eyes to a few things I hadn't really considered around the wording of things like menstrual products um, and the taboos that still exist in many households. And she lives by example and I love the fact that in her career she's actually managed to combine the things she's passionate about If you found that interesting, I'd love to hear your own menstrual stories. Don't forget to join me again next time. We'll be talking to another amazing guest about how to fit wellness into your life. And also remember, you can find all the previous episodes of The Wellness Edit on your favourite podcast platform and also via the Holland & Barrett website at hollandandbarrett.com. All views are those of our guests and not Holland & Barrett, unless explicitly stated otherwise. Any reference to brands and or products should not be considered as an endorsement.